Section 2 of One Day's Courtship and the Heralds of Fame by Robert Barr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Nat Spratt. Chapter 2 of One Day's Courtship. Eva Somerton of Boston knew that she lived in the right portion of that justly celebrated city, and this knowledge was evident in the poise of her queenly head and in every movement of her graceful form. Blundering foreigners, foreigners as far as Boston is concerned, although they may be citizens of the United States, considered Boston to be a large city with commerce and railroads and busy streets and enterprising newspapers, but the true Bostonian knows that this view is very incorrect. The real Boston is penetrated by no railroads. Even the jingle of the streetcar bell does not disturb the silence of the streets of this select city. It is to the ordinary Boston what the empty, out-of-season London is to the rest of the busy metropolis. The stranger, jostled by the throng, may not notice that London is empty, but his lordship, if he happens during the deserted period to pass through, knows there is not a soul in town. Miss Somerton had many delusions, but fortunately for her peace of mind, she had never yet met a candid friend with courage enough to tell her so. It would have required more bravery than the ordinary society person possesses to tell Miss Somerton about any of her faults. The young gentleman of her acquaintance claimed that she had no faults, and if her lady friends thought otherwise, they reserved the expression of such opinions for social gatherings not graced by the presence of Miss Somerton. Eva Somerton thought she was not proud, or if there was any tinge of pride in her character, it was pride of the necessary and proper sort. She also possessed the vain belief that true merit was the one essential, but if true merit had had the misfortune to be presented to Miss Somerton without an introduction of a strictly unimpeachable nature, there is every reason to fear true merit would not have had the exquisite privilege of basking in the smiles of that young Bostonian. But perhaps her chief delusion was the belief that she was an artist. She had learned all that Boston could teach of drawing, and this thin veneer had received a beautiful foreign polish abroad. Her friends pronounced her sketches really wonderful. Perhaps if Miss Somerton's entire capital had been something less than her half-yearly income, she might have made a name for herself. But the rich man gets a foretaste of the scriptural difficulty awaiting him at the gates of heaven when he endeavors to achieve an earthly success, the price of which is hard labor and not hard cash. We are told that pride must have a fall, and there came an episode in Miss Somerton's career as an artist which was a rude shock to her self-complacency. Having purchased a landscape by a celebrated artist whose work she had long admired, she at last ventured to write him and enclose some of her own sketches with a request for a candid judgment of them. That is, she said she wanted a candid judgment of them. The reply seemed to her so ungentlemanly and so harsh that in her vexation and anger she tore the letter to shreds and stamped her pretty foot with a vehemence which would have shocked those who knew her, only as the dignified and self-possessed Miss Eva Somerton. Then she looked at her libeled sketches, and somehow they did not appear to be quite so faultless as she had supposed them to be. This inspection was followed by a thoughtful and tearful period of meditation. And finally, with contriteness, the young woman picked up from her studio floor the shreds of the letter and pasted them carefully together on a white sheet of paper, in which form she still preserved the first honest opinion she had ever received. 
In the seclusion of her aesthetic studio, Miss Summerton made a heroic resolve to work hard. Her life was to be consecrated to art. She would win reluctant recognition from the masters. Under all this wave of heroic resolution was an undercurrent of determination to get even with the artist who had treated her work so contemptuously. Few of us quite live up to our best intentions, and Miss Summerton was no exception to the rule. She did not work as devotedly as she had hoped to do, nor did she become a recluse from society. A year after, she sent to the artist some sketches which she had taken in Quebec, some unknown waterfalls, some wild river scenery, and received from him a warmer letter of commendation than she had hoped for. He remembered her former sketches and now saw a great improvement. If the waterfall sketches were not exaggerations, he would like to see the originals. Where were they? The lady was proud of her discoveries in the almost unknown land of northern Quebec, and she wrote a long letter telling all about them, and a polite note of thanks for the information ended the correspondence. Miss Summerton's favorite discovery was that tremendous downward plunge of the St. Maurice, the falls of the Shawanagan. She had sketched it from a dozen different standpoints and raved about it to her friends. If such a dignified young person as Miss Summerton could be said to rave over anything, some Boston people, on her recommendation, had visited the falls, but their account of the journey made so much of the difficulties and discomforts, and so little of the magnificence of the cataract, that our amateur artist resolved to keep the falls, as it were, to herself. She made yearly pilgrimages to the St. Maurice, and came to have a kind of idea of possession which always amused Mr. Mason. She seemed to resent the fact that others went to look at the falls, and worse than all, took picnic baskets there, actually launching on its sacred shores, leaving empty champagne bottles and boxes of sardines that had evidently broken someone's favorite knife in the opening. This particular summer she had driven out to the Greys, but finding that a party was going up in canoes every day that week, she promptly ordered her driver to take her back to Three Rivers, saying to Mr. Mason she would return when she could have the falls to herself. "'You remind me of Miss Porter,' said the Lumber King. "'Miss Porter? Who is she?' When Miss Porter visited England and saw Mr. Gladstone, he asked her if she had ever seen the Niagara Falls. "'Seen them,' she answered. "'Why, I own them.' "'What did she mean by that? I confess I don't see the point, or perhaps it isn't a joke.' "'Oh, yes, it is. You mustn't slight my good stories in that way. She meant just what she said.' I believe the Porter family own, or did own, Goat Island, and, I suppose, the other bank, and therefore, the American Fall. The joke, I do dislike to have to explain jokes, especially to you cool, unsympathizing Bostonians, is the ridiculousness of any mere human person claiming to own such a thing as the Niagara Falls. I believe, though, that you are quite equal to it. I do indeed. Thank you, Mr. Mason. I knew you would be grateful when I made myself clearly understood. Now, what I was going to propose is this. You should apply to the Canadian government for possession of the Shawanagan. I think they would let it go at a reasonable figure. They look on it merely as an annoying impediment to the navigation of the river, and an obstruction which has caused them to spend some thousands of dollars in building a slide by the side of it, so that the logs may come down safely. If I owned it, the slide is the first thing I would destroy." What? And ruin the lumber industry of the upper St. Maurice? Oh, you wouldn't do such a thing. If that is your idea, I give you fair warning that I will oppose your claims with all the arts of the lobbyist. If you want to become the private owner of the falls, 
you should tell the government that you have some thoughts of encouraging the industries of the province by building a mill. A mill? Yes, why not? Indeed, I have half a notion to put a sawmill there myself. It always grieves me to see such magnificent power going to waste. Oh, seriously, Mr. Mason, you would never think of committing such an act of sacrilege. Sacrilege, indeed. I like that. Why, the man who makes one sawmill hum, where no mill ever hummed before, is a benefactor to his species. Don't they teach political economy at Boston? I thought you liked sawmills. You drew a very pretty picture of the one down the stream. I admire a ruined sawmill, as that one was, but not one in a state of activity, or of eruption, as a person might say. Well, won't you go up to the falls today, Miss Summerton? I assure you we have a most unexceptionable party. Why, one of them is a government official. Think of that. I refuse to think of it, or if I do think of it, I refuse to be dazzled by his magnificence. I want to see the Shawanagan, not a picnic party, drinking. You wrong them. Really, you do, Miss Summerton. Believe me. You have got your dates mixed. It is the champagne party that goes today. The beer crowd is not due until tomorrow. The principle is the same. The price of the refreshment is not. I speak as a man of bitter experience. Let's see. If recollection holds her throne, I think there was a young lady from New England, I forget the name of the town at the moment, who took a lunch with her the last time she went to the Shawanagan. I merely give this as my impression, you know. I am open to contradiction. Certainly, I took a lunch. I always do. I would today if I were going up there, and Mrs. Mason would give me some sandwiches. You would give me a lunch, wouldn't you, dear? I'll tell them to get it ready now, if you will only stay, replied that lady, on being appealed to. No, it isn't the lunch I object to. I object to people going there merely for the lunch. I go for the scenery. The lunch is incidental. When you get the deed of the falls, I'll tell you what we'll do, put in Mason. We will have a band of trained Indians stationed at the landing, and they will allow no one to disembark who does not express himself in sufficiently ecstatic terms about the great cataract. You will draw up a set of adjectives, which I will give to the Indians, instructing them to allow no one to land who does not use at least three out of five of them and referring to the falls. People whose eloquent appreciation does not reach the required altitude will have to stay there till it does. That's all. We will treat them as we do our juries, starve them into a verdict, and the right verdict at that. Don't mind him, Eva. He is just trying to exasperate you. Think of what I have to put up with. He goes on like that all the time, said Mrs. Mason. Really, my dear, your flattery confuses me. You can't persuade anyone that I keep up this brilliancy in the privacy of my own house. It is only turned on for company. Why, Mr. Mason, I didn't think you looked on me as company. I thought I enjoyed the friendship of the Mason family. Oh, you do. You do indeed. The company I referred to was the official party which has just gone to the falls. This is some of the brilliancy left over. But really, you had better stay after coming all this distance. Yes, do, Eva. Let me go back with you to the Three Rivers, and then you stay with me till next week, when you can visit the falls all alone. It is very pleasant at Three Rivers just now, and besides, we can go for a day's shopping at Montreal. I wish I could. Why, of course you can, said Mason. Imagine the delight of smuggling your purchases back to Boston. Confess that this is a pleasure you hadn't thought of. 
I admit the fascination of it all, but you see, I am with a party that has gone on to Quebec, and I just got away for a day. I am to meet them there tonight or tomorrow morning, but I will return in the autumn. Mrs. Mason, when it is too late for the picnics, then, Mr. Mason, take warning. I mean to have a canoe to myself, or, well, you know the way we Bostonians treated you Britishers once upon a time. Distinctly. But we will return good for evil, and give you warm tea instead of the cold mixture you so foolishly brewed in the harbor. As the buckboard disappeared around the corner, and Mr. and Mrs. Mason walked back to the house, the lady said, What a strange girl Eva is. Very. Don't she strike you as being a trifle selfish? Selfish? Eva Somerton? Why, what could make you think such a thing? What an absurd idea. You cannot imagine how kind she was to me when I visited Boston. Who could help it, my dear? I would have been so myself if I had happened to meet you there. Now, Ed, don't be absurd. There is something absurd in being kind to a person's wife, isn't there? Well, it struck me her objection to anyone else being at the falls when her ladyship was there might seem not to me, of course, but to an outsider, a trifle selfish. Oh, you don't understand her at all. She has an artistic temperament, and she is quite right in wishing to be alone. Now, Ed, when she does come again, I want you to keep anyone else from going up there. Don't forget it, as you do most of the things I tell you. Say to anybody who wants to go up that the canoes are out of repair. Oh, I can't say that, you know. Anything this side of a crime, I'm willing to commit. But to perjure myself, no, not for Venice. Can you think of any other method that will combine duplicity with a clear conscience? I'll tell you what I'll do. I will have the canoe drawn up and gently, but firmly, slit it with my knife. One of the men can mend it in ten minutes. Then I can look even the official from Quebec in the face and tell him truly that the canoe will not hold water. I suppose as long as my story will hold water, you and Miss Somerton will not mind." If the canoe is ready for her when she comes, I shall be satisfied. Please to remember, I am going to spend a week or two in Boston next winter. Oh, that's it, is it? Then it was not pure philanthropy. Pure nonsense, Ed. I want the canoe to be ready, that's all. When Mrs. Mason received the letter from Miss Somerton, stating the time the young woman intended to pay her visit to the Shawanagan, she gave the letter to her husband and reminded him of the necessity of keeping the canoe for that particular date. As the particular date was some weeks off, and as Ed Mason was a man who never crossed the stream until he came to it, he said, All right, put the letter in his inside pocket, and the next time he thought of it was on the fine autumn afternoon, Monday afternoon, when he saw Mrs. Mason drive up to the door of his Lumberwoods residence with Miss Eva Somerton in the buggy beside her. The young lady wondered, as Mr. Mason helped her out, if that genial gentleman whom she regarded as the most fortunate of men, had in reality some secret gnawing sorrow the world knew not of. "'Why, Ed, you look ill,' exclaimed Mrs. Mason. "'Is there anything the matter?' "'Oh, it is nothing, at least not of much consequence. A little business worry, that's all. Has there been any trouble?' "'Oh, no, at the least not yet.' "'Trouble about the men, is it?' "'No, not about the men.' said the unfortunate gentleman, with a somewhat unnecessary emphasis on the last word. "'Oh, Mr. Mason, I am afraid I have come at the wrong time. If so, don't hesitate to tell me, if I can do anything to help you. I hope I may be allowed.' "'You have come just at the right time,' said the lumberman, "'and you are very welcome, I assure you. If I find I need help, 
as perhaps I may, you will be reminded of your promise. To put off as long as possible the evil time of meeting his wife, Mason went with the man to see the horse put away, and he lingered an unnecessarily long time in ascertaining that everything was right in the stable. The man was astonished to find his master so particular that afternoon. A crisis may be postponed, but it can rarely be avoided altogether, and knowing he had to face the inevitable sooner or later, the unhappy man, with a sigh, betook himself to the house, where he found his wife impatiently waiting for him. She closed the door and confronted him. Now, Ed, what's the matter? Where's Miss Summerton? was the somewhat irrelevant reply. She has gone to her room, Ed. Don't keep me in suspense. What is wrong? You remember John Trenton, who was here in the summer? I remember hearing you speak of him. I didn't meet him, you know. Oh, that's so. Neither you did. You see, he's an awful good fellow, Trenton is. That is, for an Englishman. Well, what has Trenton to do with the trouble? Everything, my dear, everything. I see how it is. Trenton visited the Shawanagan. He did. And he wants to go there again. He does. And you have gone and promised him the canoe for tomorrow. The intuition of woman, my dear, is the most wonderful thing on earth. It is not half so wonderful as the negligence of man. I won't say the stupidity. Thank you, Jenny, for not saying it. But I really think I would feel better if you did. Now, what are you going to do about it? Well, my dear, strange as it may appear, that very question has been racking my brain for the last ten minutes. Now, what would you do in my position? Oh, I couldn't be in your position. No, that's so, Jenny. Excuse me for suggesting the possibility. I really think this trouble has affected my mind a little. But if you had a husband, if a sensible woman like you could have a husband, who got himself into such a position, what would you advise him to do? Now, Ed, don't joke. It's too serious. My dear, no one on earth can have such a realization of its seriousness as I have at this moment. I feel as Mark Twain did with that novel he never finished. I have brought things to a point where I can't go any further. The game seems blocked. I wonder if Miss Summerton would accept 10,000 feet of lumber, FOB, and call it square. Really, Ed, if you can't talk sensibly, I have nothing further to say. Well, as I said, the strain is getting too much for me. Now don't go away, Jenny. Here's what I'm thinking of doing. I'll speak to Trenton. He won't mind Miss Summerton's going in the canoe with him. In fact, I should think he would rather like it. Dear me, Ed, is that all the progress you've made? I am not troubling myself about Mr. Trenton. The difficulty will be with Eva. Do you think for a moment she will go if she imagined herself under obligations to a stranger for the canoe? Can't you get Mr. Trenton to put off his visit until the day after tomorrow? It isn't long to wait. No, that is impossible, you see. He has just time to catch a steamer as it is. No, he has the promise in writing, while Miss Summerton has no legal evidence if this thing ever gets into the courts. Trenton has my written promise. You see, I did not remember the two dates were the same. When I wrote to Trenton, Ed, don't try to excuse yourself. You had her letter in your pocket. You know you had. This is a matter for which there is no excuse, and it cannot be explained away. That's so, Jenny. I am down in the depths once more. I shall not try to crawl out again. At least, not while my wife is looking. No, your plan will not work. I don't know that any will. There is only one thing to try, and it is this. 
Miss Summerton must think that the canoe is hers. You must appeal to her generosity to let Mr. Trenton go with her. Won't you make the appeal, Jen? No, I will not. In the first place, she'll be sorry for you, because you will make such a bungle of it. Trial is your only hope. Oh, if success lies in bungling, I will succeed. Don't be too sure. I suppose that man will be here by daybreak tomorrow. Not so bad as that, Jenny. You always try to put the worst face on things. He won't be here till sunrise at the earliest. I will ask Eva to come down. You needn't hurry, just because of me. Besides, I would like a few moments to prepare myself for my fate. Even a murderer is given a little time. Not a moment, Ed. We had better get this thing settled as soon as possible. Perhaps you are right, he murmured with a deep sigh. Well, if we Britishers, as Miss S. calls us, ever faced the Americans with as faint a heart as I do now, I don't wonder we got licked. Don't say licked, Ed. I believe it's historical. Oh, I see. You object to the word, not to the allegation. Well, I won't cavil about that. All my sympathy just now is concentrated on one unfortunate Britisher. My dear, let the sacrifice begin. Mrs. Mason went to the stairway and called, Eva, dear, can you come down for a moment? We want you to help us out of a difficulty. Miss Summerton appeared, smilingly, smoothing down the front of the dress that had taken the place of the one she traveled in. She advanced towards Mason with sweet compassion in her eyes, and that ill-fated man thought he had never seen any one look so altogether charming, excepting, of course, his own wife in her youthful days. She seemed to have smoothed away all the Boston stiffness as she smoothed her dress. "'Oh, Mr. Mason,' she said sympathetically as she approached, "'I am so sorry anything has happened to trouble you, and I do hope I am not intruding.' "'Indeed, you are not, Miss Eva.' In fact, your sympathy has taken away half the trouble already, and I want to beg of you to help me off with the other half. A glance at his wife's face showed him that he had not made a bad beginning. Miss Summerton, you said you would like to kelp me. Now, I am going to appeal to you. I throw myself on your mercy. There was a slight frown on Mrs. Mason's face, and her husband felt that he was perhaps appealing too much. In fact, the truth is... My wife gave me... Here a cough interrupted him, and he paused and ran his hand through his hair. Pray, don't mind me, Mr. Mason, said Miss Summerton, if you would rather not tell. Oh, but I must. That is, I want you to know. He glanced at his wife, but there was no help there, so he plunged in headlong. To tell the truth, there is a friend of mine who wants to go to the falls tomorrow. He sails for Europe immediately, and has no other day. The Boston rigidity perceptibly returned. Oh, if that is all, you needn't have had a moment's trouble. I can just as well put off my visit. Oh, can you? cried Mason joyously. His wife sat down in the rocking chair with a sigh of despair. Her infatuated husband thought he was getting along famously. Then your friends are not waiting for you at Quebec this time, and you can stay a day or two with us? Eva's friends are at Montreal, Edward, and she cannot stay. Oh, then... Why, then, tomorrow's your only day, too. It doesn't matter in the least, Mr. Mason. I shall be most glad to put off my visit to oblige your friend. No, I didn't mean that, she cried, seeing the look of anguish on Mason's face. It is to oblige you. Now, am I not good? No, you are cruel, replied Mason. You are going up to the falls. I insist on that. Let's take that as settled. The canoe is yours. He caught an encouraging look from his wife. 
If you want to torture me, you will say you will not go. If you want to do me the greatest of favors, you will let my friend go in the canoe with you to the landing. What? Go alone with a stranger? cried Miss Summerton, freezingly. No, the Indians will be there, you know. Oh, I didn't expect to paddle the canoe myself. I don't know about that. You strike me as a girl who would paddle her own canoe pretty well. Now, Edward, said his wife, he wants to take some photographs of the falls, and... Photographs? Why, Ed, I thought you said he was an artist. Isn't a photographer an artist? You know he isn't. Well, my dear, you know they put on their signs, artist, photographer, pictures taken in cloudy weather. But he's an amateur photographer. An amateur is not so bad as a professional, is he, Miss Summerton? I think he's worse, if there is any choice. A professional at least takes good pictures, such as they are. He is an elderly gentleman, and I am sure... Oh, is he? cried Miss Summerton. Then the matter is settled. He shall go. I thought it was some young fop of an amateur photographer. Oh, quite elderly. His hair is gray, or badly tinged at least. The frown on Miss Summerton's brow cleared away, and she smiled in a manner that was cheering to the heart of her supplicant. He thought it reminded him of the sun breaking through the clouds over the hills beyond the St. Maurice. Why, Mr. Mason, how selfishly I've been acting, haven't I? You really must forgive me. It is so funny, too, making you beg for a seat in your own canoe. Oh, no, it's your canoe. That is, after twelve o'clock tonight, that's when your contract begins. The arrangement does not seem to me quite regular, but then this is the Canadian woods and not Boston. But I want to make my little proviso. I do not wish to be introduced to this man. He must have no excuse for beginning a conversation with me. I don't want to talk tomorrow. Heroic resolution, murmured Mason. So I do not wish to see the gentleman until I go into the canoe. You can be conveniently absent. Mrs. Perrault will take me down there. She speaks no English, and it is not likely he can speak French. We can arrange that. Then it is settled, and all I hope for is a good day tomorrow. Mrs. Mason sprang up and kissed the fair Bostonian, and Mason felt a sensation of joyous freedom that recalled his youthful days when a half-holiday was announced. "'Oh, it is too good of you,' said the elder lady. "'Not a bit of it,' whispered Miss Summerton. "'I hate the man before I have seen him.'" End of chapter 2